Gone Girls podcast. We interview the people we like and try to get to the bottom of life. The Gone Girls podcast. The Gone Girls podcast show. Hi, Shauna. Hi, Ankara. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Wow, your hair looks amazing. Did you get it done for New Year's Eve? It's so shiny and smooth. No, I got a keratin treatment from Steph at Salon Gossip over a month ago, and my hair still looks amazing. Then I got a blowout from Frankie at Salon Gossip, which made it look even better. I love blowouts. Was it expensive? It's only $30 with the code GONEGIRLS. What? You can't get a blowout anywhere for $30. You can at Salon Gossip. Just use the code GONEGIRLS. Where is Salon Gossip? 1036 Broad Street in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Their phone number is 973-429-8955. Call today and make an appointment. Make sure to use the code GONEGIRLS when you're getting your blowout. Awesome. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Gone Girls Podcast. My name is Ankara Savone. I'm Shauna Lane. And we've got Jeffrey Gurian here. And now I'm one of the Gone Girls. Yeah, it's so is. exciting. <laughs> it's amazing. i got to yes. take off my jacket. Yeah. I'm too, getting too hot from being one of the I Gone, I gone I Girls. Need, I, I think I'm going to take a sweater off, It's too. hot in here, right? We're taking off our yeah. clothes. I'm not I'm taking off my clothes because I feel disrobing. fat. Yeah. This is nice. Okay, good. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited to be here. This is fun. Be here at your apartment. In my apartment. I'm so excited to be in my apartment. The museum on the way room. here was wonderful. <laughs> the, the tour through the museum. I here. am known through every room of my apartment. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's yeah. true. Pictures that's are amazing. So um, thank you so much for coming on the show. And, and um, I hope you notice that in some of the pictures, I even let someone else be in the picture. Yeah. They're not just of me. <laughs> yeah, that's just that very there are other kind people of in there you. Too. Sharing is caring, <laughs> yeah. Jeffrey. What would you say the oldest picture you have with someone famous? Um, when, when? About 30 years ago. Wow, yeah. that is amazing. Yeah, they, they go back, way back. I mean, to the to the greats from the golden age of comedy. Because Milton Berle was my sponsor in the Friars Club. If you don't know who that is, look it up. Google, <laughs> Google it. He's, he's actually probably on Google, I'm sure. Are you uh, from New York? I'm from New York. Okay. Yeah. Born and raised. Absolutely. In I'm the only person I know. I was born in the Bronx, actually. Okay. And then we moved to Westchester, uh-huh. to Yonkers, and then I moved to the city on okay. my own when I grew up. When I, after I got divorced, I moved to Manhattan. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And that is, how long have you been involved in comedy? Decades. Decades. When I was like, 12 years old, I was already writing comedy, and that's when I decided that I wanted to be in a medical profession as well, which started out oh. as a rumor. Did you hear the rumor that I was a dentist? <laughs> yes, I did. That's a crazy rumor. And you know when that oh. rumor started? What? The day I graduated from dental school. <laughs> oh, I was going to say. And it never stopped. It I was was like, I, I think... People drive me crazy with that. They keep saying you know, that I used to be a dentist. Yeah, I, did. I was a cosmetic specialist while I was writing for Rodney Dangerfield and Joan Rivers and... Friars so you went to dental school here in the city? I went to Temple University in Philadelphia. Okay. 
And, and then so then you teeth. practice. You guys have great teeth, by the way. Thank you both have you. beautiful smiles. Personally <laughs> and professionally, I can say that. Thank you. Yeah, Ankara's teeth are off the hook. I'm like, I, my sister's a dentist. And then she, really and she smiles and shows like oh, every single like, teeth. She even shows her bottom teeth. teeth. It's very rare. No one does that. It's hard. Back of my teeth. You can see it all. Ankara and sharks do that. That's it. That's about it. Which is ironically her great credit. Shark week. Shark week. That's right. Amazing. A peak of my career. <laughs> so you would write jokes for comedians and then fix their teeth? I never combined it. I only did that oh. once. Paul Provenza was in a show. I was doing a, a radio show with Jackie Mason at the time. A lot of names. Jackie, Sheba Mason's dad. Remember? Yes, Sheba Mason's dad, even though he doesn't like to admit it. But they're like twins. There's no she question. She couldn't look his more, more like him. Yeah, like him. Exactly. And so I was a guest on the show and Paul Provenza was on. And I don't think we had... Maybe we had met briefly, and Paul was in a, a show called Only Kidding, and when he went on stage, he had to put a bottle to his lips, and he accidentally chipped his front tooth. Oh my gosh. So we're on the radio, and he mentions that to Jackie, and Jackie's like, well, why don't you go to Jeffrey? Uh-huh. And he's like, what's the language like, by the way, on the it's show? It's totally fine. Oh, yeah? yeah? He's like, why the fuck would I go to a comedy writer to fix my teeth? <laughs> And Jackie's like, no, he does that also. Oh so God. Paul, I brought Paul up to my office and I fixed his tooth immediately yeah. after the show. And then he went on stage that night oh. and it stayed on for many, many years. And we became good friends. So wow. you, um, my boyfriend also uh, makes teeth, but he's not, he's not. What a do you mean he makes teeth? He's a dental technician. Oh, okay, good. I just thought it's just like a crazy hobby. He's yeah. open, he's just really makes in, teeth. He's just like, out of anything. He'll yeah, that's just, start he just, carving away. Like, carving. Yeah. yeah. You never know. He winds know. up with teeth. You never know. You really never know. Yeah. You just never know. No, he also, he does that, but you're, you actually do like the veneers and stuff like that. I was that's one of the first would... to do cosmetic bonding. I used to lecture on it. And, you know, taking crooked teeth and making them look straight in mm-hmm. one visit. Yeah. It was a, an artistic technique. You sculpt uh-huh. them, and then you shine a light on it, and it hardens that way. And it's called cosmetic bonding. Uh-huh. So I used to do that. That was, like I said, that was a specialty of mine. And I did that for a long time, and it was you great. You have nice teeth, too. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Great yeah. teeth. Yeah. Right. Well, it's important. If you go to a dentist and he has horrible teeth, you don't want to be there. That's true. Yeah, yeah. A lot like, of dentists don't have great the, teeth, the worst. too. And I'm like, the worst. what? How is that possible? I know, right? I guess they get so tired from doing it all day that they're like, I can't even focus on my own teeth. Or they don't trust anybody else to do their teeth for them. I could never go like, to somebody that I did. You know, if you go to somebody, they should be an example of what they're selling, right. of what they're doing. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, right. so... You know, I and I loved it. And my nurse knew, never disturb me unless it's for show business. So she would come <laughs> to the room and she'd be like, excuse me, Dr. Rivers is on the phone or, uh, <laughs> you know, Dr. Belzer is calling. You know. <laughs> the only one that no one believed was Dr. Dangerfield. <laughs> no one believed that there could be a Dr. Dangerfield. Oh my God. But I, I, I never... I didn't tell jokes in the office. As a matter of fact, my patients would be like, are you sure you're in comedy? You're so serious. <laughs> yeah. Because who, who wants to go to a doctor who fools around? I, I don't feel the need yeah. to tell jokes. It, it, it's more of an air of, of, of humor right. than telling jokes. Some doctors think this, but like I dislocated my shoulder once and I called my doctor and some schmuck must have told him, tell your patients jokes. So he says to me, well, don't make a habit of this. I was like dying in pain. Oh my, my shoulder was out of the socket. Ow. And I call the guy. It was the worst pain I ever had. And I, I'm asking him what to do. And he says, don't make a habit of this. Oh my and so afterwards, I said, you know, listen, when you're 
tell jokes. Make sure the patient is better first. Yeah, timing. <laughs> it's all about timing. Not in the middle of the attack. <laughs> oh not not when they're like dying in pain. No one wants to hear a joke then. So, you know, most doctors don't have great personalities. So I had pictures on my wall of the comedians that I was working with in those days. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't. I stayed very serious when I did. I, I never wanted people to think that I wasn't taking my work very seriously, which right. I did. So I tried to keep them separate. Separately. Yeah. So you would you would write for people like what at night and then do whenever the... they needed. I remember once in the middle of the afternoon, the Friars Club called me and they said Jim Dale is being roasted by the Friars Club. Can you get here this afternoon? He needs material, and I I probably left my office. Oh my I ran God. out like a maniac and I sat because he was starring on Broadway at the time. He was a big Broadway star and it was very exciting for me. It was one of the first roasts that I wrote for. Wow! I wrote for the Friars roast for about twelve years straight. Because the uh, producer in those days was a guy named Bob Sachs from the Sachs Fifth Avenue family. Okay. And he was producing the roast, and I was his writer. So when we roasted Bruce Willis, I wrote his material. When we roasted Jerry Lewis, I, I got to work with Jerry. Nice. For two nights alone in his hotel room, just the two of us working with a legend like that. And while I was with him, he got a phone call. You know, every year he would do a telethon for muscular dystrophy. Right. I remember. And while I was with him, he got a phone call that they discovered the the cure for the Duchenne form of muscular dystrophy. And he started crying like tears were running down his face. Aww. And I was just me and him. It was right. like an amazing moment, moment. to share huh. with like an icon like that. It was really incredible. Were you also doing comedy at night yourself? I didn't perform in those days. I didn't oh. perform for many years until recently. And it was so weird, you know. Most people, it, like, oh. if you're, how do people know you're a writer back then? Because now you can, you know, it's so different than being well, a writer. I went to clubs. I went. I went okay. every place. I went in those days. The Catskill Mountains were very big for comedy, oh, okay. and in the summer I was up there, and I would go to the hotels, and I would meet the comedians. And I would offer my services, and I would say, I'm a comedy writer. It takes a lot of nerve to say that yeah. in the beginning, when, like when you're a kid, you know? And, and I said, and I really think I could write for you. And they were open to it, and they gave me their address, and I would send them jokes. And then if they did them, they'd pay me. Not a lot, but because comics are weird like that, yeah. you know? Like, and that even if they do your jokes for years, they just pay you once. Yeah. And then they're like, you know, it, it was funny in the beginning and now it's not working as if you're supposed to give them the money back. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Comedians, <laughs> are, comedians are very weird. Most young comics don't use writers these days, but in those days it was accepted. It was a different uh, kind of comedy because uh, most comedians did one liners. Right. It was an observational comedy. It wasn't until Robin, uh, till, uh, Robert Klein and David Brenner started doing observational comedy and Jerry Seinfeld, people like that, after them, yeah. that people would start talking about what happened to them that day and stuff. But most of the time in the old days, people would take a premise that they thought was funny and build jokes around that. Mm-hmm. It was called a hunk of material. That's what everybody wanted, a hunk. A hunk of material. material. Yeah, and you'd have to write hunks of material. <laughs> so when I wrote for Rodney, I used to come in with pages and pages of jokes for him. And I'd say, Rodney, look at all the jokes I brought. And he goes, yeah, Jeff, but they got to be funny, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he was great with, <laughs> with one-liners. Rodney was the first big star that I ever wrote for. And wow. then he did my stuff on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, which was amazing. What a thrill for me that was. He did one of my opening lines. Uh, 
one of his opening lines was a joke that I wrote for him. And, you know, when you went on the Tonight Show in those days, it was very different than doing Fallon these days or anything. Because in those days, if Johnny Carson invited you to sit on the couch, you had a career the next day. Wow. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, it was very rare that you'd get on a late night TV show. And some comics would just do their set. But if Johnny, like every once in a while, if he liked somebody, he'd invite him to the couch. Rodney was already a star, so he would always be on the couch. And he wouldn't do conversation. He would have jokes to perform on the show and jokes for the couch. Because he wasn't the conversationalist, you know? So, uh, yeah, I wrote him this joke. And it was such a simple joke, but he he loved it. You know, he had a stock opening. He would always say, you know, I'm all right now, but last week was rough. You know, he says, uh, (laughs) he says, uh, I bought one of those whirlpools for my bathtub. The first night I used it, I lost three of my best ships. (laughs) (laughs) And and he loved that joke. And he used that as his opening line. I think he paid me like $250 for that one joke because he was so excited about it. And I couldn't believe that he did that with Johnny Carson. It was amazing. Wow. Very exciting. And then I, so I used to hang out with him at the club all the time. And now it's exciting when I perform at the club because I hadn't been there for many years. And his partner, Tony, still owns the club. So lately I've been performing there a lot. And his dressing room is just like it was when he was there. They didn't change anything in the club. Wow. It was exactly, I was sitting there one night when I first went back, just reminiscing. And his partner, Tony, came by. And he's like, Jeffrey, I remember you sitting there with Rodney in the 80s writing jokes together. And I was like, that's such a cool thing that you remember that. Yeah. Because I remember it, but for somebody else to tell you makes a big difference, you know. Of course, because yeah. it's like saying you're there. Yeah, it was really very cool. So what made you start to actually do stand-up? How long, and how long have you been doing stand-up, like yourself? Within the last 10 years. You know, Oh wow. what I was saying was like, if you start doing stand-up in your 20s and nobody knows who you are, you have the freedom to bomb which is very important in order to get better. You have mm-hmm. to be able to go up on stage and yep. try stuff. Mm-hmm. And who cares if you don't do well? Nobody knows you. You're a kid, Yeah, you right? kind of already were a writer. I, too many people knew me, and it was a lot of pressure oh. because by the time I decided to go up on stage, I was so nervous yeah. because people expected more of me. Right. It's like being related to somebody who's really famous and yeah. well-known is a lot of pressure. Yeah, right. because you're like, why And so it was very hard for me. And my whole life, I've always tried to battle everything that makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I stuttered very badly. And I always like to talk about that because um, I stuttered so bad, I couldn't even say my name. And uh, in, like Aww. into my 20s, I stuttered. Very, and my parents took me for speech therapy and no one was able to help me. And I was oh. determined that I wasn't going to go through my whole life as a stutterer because it's a horrible affliction. Yeah. So I worked on myself. I realized one day that I didn't stutter when I was alone. I only stuttered when I was trying to talk to somebody else. Oh. Which told me that there's really nothing wrong with me. You can't, you can't have a disability based on your location. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Right. If a right man here. has a limp, he limps in every room of his house. He can't go in a bedroom, close the door, and stop limping because <laughs> yeah. it's a true disability. But if I could speak perfectly in my room alone and then I stutter when I see you, mm-hmm. then it means that something in my head, that I created that. Yeah. So I, I worked on myself for years, literally years. I was obsessed with developing techniques for stopping stuttering. And now as an avocation, I work with stutterers and I teach them my technique of how not to stutter. Oh. And as you say, I conquered it, which is a very hard thing to do. And I think of it every day when I'm on radio or doing TV or anything that I do. I'm always listening to my voice because it's something that never goes away. It's so deeply ingrained. I had to convince my mind that I didn't need to stutter. 
So I used that to help me to get up on stage because oh. I was very nervous and I realized so many people do it. Why should I be nervous? Yeah. It's reverse egotism to think that you can't do something that many other people do. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you want to be right. president or you want to be the pope or something where there's only one person, yeah. okay, then maybe you could doubt yourself. Say, well, maybe I, I could probably never do that. Okay. But if you want to be something that millions of other people are, a doctor, do. a lawyer, an accountant, a comedian, whatever lifeguard. it is. Lifeguard. A lifeguard. Yeah. yeah. Who are you to say that you can't do it? You know, it's reverse egotism. Why are you that special that you can't accomplish that? Right. You know what I'm saying? So I look at all these people on stage. Because <laughs> I'm a victim of my decisions. <laughs> She's doubting herself right now. She's like, I don't, well, I can't do it. That's what happens. We're our, we're our own worst enemies. Yeah. We, we give ourselves fears and doubts. Mm-hmm. And so ever since I learned how not to stutter, I've learned, I go through life trying to confront my uncomfortability because so many things <laughs> make me nervous to do them. I hate traveling. So I made myself go to Europe alone for two weeks. I went to Spain and Italy because it made me so nervous to do that because I get lost wherever I go. So everything that makes me nervous that other people can do easily, I try and do that. I love that. I know. That's kind of, yeah. I make myself do it. I have to do it as much as it it bothers me. So when I go up on stage, (coughs) even now, you know, I feel very anxious, but I remember... You know, I did this book, Laughing Legends, with Chris Rock, and Jim Gaffigan is in it. Is it it okay if I look in it? Yeah, of course. And and, and he told me a story that for his first six or eight years... Richie. ...that he got stage fright every time he went on stage to the point where he got physically ill. Who is this? Jim Gaffigan. Jim Gaffigan. Right. Said that he got physically ill for the first six or eight years of his career. That's how nervous he was until it went away. And I realized that everybody battles that in some way. Not yeah. everybody goes on stage and it's just so easy to do no, it. No, everybody's you, scared. You just do it anyway because you feel like you're supposed to do it. You have something to say or you're funny or you're talented and people need to see that. Right. You know, you can only suppress it for so long. I like I felt I couldn't go through my whole life and never go on a stage to tell jokes because if I'm not funny, then I need to find out. Because I go through or life... at least try. Yeah, well, so why not, you go through right? life thinking you're funny. You yeah. need to know if you're funny or you're not. No one laughs to be polite. No. You know, if you're a singer, the audience will clap politely when you're done, whether you're good or not. Mm-hmm. But if you're a comedian... <clears throat> they can't help it. Well, they either laugh or they don't laugh. Yeah, they have to <laughs> laugh. If they think it's funny, they laugh. It's a, it's like a, it's a, it's a, a guttural reaction to a feeling. Is Danny Cohen in this book or am I crazy? No, no, no. No, no. no. Okay. These are all big stars that came out of the Laughing legends. Oh, I see. Okay, Sherrod's It's all these people. Got it. It's Jerry Seinfeld who spent his first four years there, you know. Right, right, right. Oh, look, Shauna Colin Quinn. Don't you have a credit on from something from Colin (laughs) Quinn? (laughs) I was on Tough Crowd a few times. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Well, that was a great show. Yeah, it was great That was a great show. I was great on it. I know. That's what uh, I'm saying. And I was Patrice O'Neill's co-host on the Black Phillip show. That's my clan. The Black Phillip show? The Black Phillip show. We did a show on XM Radio. Oh, I loved him. Which was him. an amazing show. Yeah, was, and it was such a big honor to me. Yeah, he was so sweet and funny. No, Just, he was he was incredible. But, you know, there was never a comedy club until Bud Friedman opened the improv, and, and that was in 1963. I think that was before you started performing, right? A little yeah, bit. A little bit before. A little bit. So, <laughs> so, and he didn't open it. The you same know, time. <laughs> he didn't open it as a comedy club. Mm-hmm. He opened it as like a coffee shop where people would come by and perform. 
It was in Times Square area, I think West 44th Street. And Broadway performers would come by after they got out of the show and they'd sing and people would do monologues. Danny Aiello was oh, the bouncer. Oh, it's Don Giovanni's now. Is they it have, really? Like, oh, they yeah? have old pictures on one brick wall of all the old oh. comedians. Yeah, it's an Italian restaurant now. Well, Danny Aiello was the bouncer, which is where he got his experience in comedy. You know, he used to own a comedy club. I don't know if you knew that. In uh, New Jersey. And it was above a restaurant in New Jersey. And it was Danny's Hideaway, I think. Uh, anyway, after a couple of years, Bud Friedman realized that people were coming more for comedy than the singers, and he turned it into a comedy club. And that was the world's first club that was dedicated to just doing comedy. And it wasn't until the end of 1972 that Rick Newman came along and opened Catch a Rising Star, which at the time was on 76th Street and 1st right. Avenue. Oh. And, and so there were these two comedy clubs, and then Richie Tinkin saw how popular... Rick Newman's place was, and he goes, I got to get in on that. He was a bar owner from the Bronx. He didn't know anything about comedy, mm -hmm. but he found a partner. They looked for a place. They found a bar that was uh, closed yeah. where it is now to this day. And on June 1st of 1976, they opened the, the comic strip. On June 17th, Jerry Seinfeld walked into audition, and his, his sign-up sheet is in this book. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, in those days, they would rate you. You'd have to fill out a form with your information, and they would rate you, and he got rated good. They said, <laughs> they said he was good. Invite him back on Monday. So Jerry that's Seinfeld what, started in the 70s? Yeah. He, oh, I didn't know that. From 1976 to 1980, he spent at the Strip. And he would go back and forth between Catch a Rising Star and the Strip because they were just a couple of blocks away from each other. Yeah. You know? But and and he was George Wallace's roommate in those days. Oh, that's why right. they're best friends. Right, right. They right, shared right. an apartment. And then when Jerry went to L.A., Paul Provenza became George Wallace's roommate. They shared an apartment. See that all that comedy? Yeah, it thing? all. It all. I mean, yeah. It's, it's crazy. Right? So many generations of comedy. It's. It's. I thought. I mean. I don't really. I. I think. I don't know anything about comedy. When I think about it, I'm like, you well, know, I think I know comedy or the history of it, and then I'm like, I don't know anything. Right. There's I was so a student much. of the, I was always fascinated by comedy since I was a kid. My dad turned me on to he used to take me to comedy films to see like the Marx Brothers and Laurel and Hardy and you know things like that and it just gave me a sense of humor as a kid. I just loved comedy all the time and I, I was fascinated by the older comedians, you know. It's a lost art that kind of comedy. You don't really see it too much. Who was your favorite you know? comedian as a kid? Would you say Oh, like that's, that's so hard to know. I, I used know, to watch so the Ed Sullivan one. show. I, I, I would just always get excited when a comedian would come on. Yeah, I would just run in to, just to watch. It was, <laughs> yeah. it was amazing. Yeah, I just would always look forward to it. There was Sam Levinson in those days. I don't, you never even heard of these people. No. But they're just like, they were icons in the comedy world. And yeah. it was a different, that some of them would be storytellers. There was no cable, so everything was super clean. Yeah. You know, Jerry Seinfeld and Paul Reiser... I met them when they were doing Caroline's Comedy Club, when Caroline had her first club on 28th Street and 7th Avenue. So that was before, that was before the Before she went port. to the seaport. Right. The, the very first club. And I remember the night I met them, and I was so impressed. They were doing very clean comedy, and they were hilariously funny, even in the beginning. They didn't even have representation yet, because I remember that night I introduced myself to Jerry, and I asked him if he wanted to meet a manager, because when I got started from Saturday night, from Alan Zweibel up at Saturday Night Live, he introduced me to his manager. 
Is he the and one that wrote that book, Bunny Bunny? Bunny Bunny, like, yeah. He was I'm very not the book, close. the play, Bunny Bunny with well, Gilda it was Radner. a book also. Yeah, oh, he and, okay. and Gilda were right. very, very close, uh, very close friends. And he went on to become an award-winning writer, director, producer. Right. Oh, what was his? What did he produce after? Um, he did the movie North. He wrote books that he just won there a was Pulitzer. A t- he he did a TV show. Oh, it's gonna drive. He me created crazy. its Gary Shandling show. Oh, right, that's what it is. I yeah. was like, it's something huge. Yeah, no, he created right. its Gary Shandling show. Right, right. And uh, I see him. We he came over here not too long ago. We shot a video for my channel because he had a, a new book come out. Um, I think he did a book with Dave Barry, the the humorist, and. Um, yeah, we stay in touch all the time. Great wow. guy. And you know how I got started? I don't know if you're interested in that. I was driving a pimp mobile in those days. Oh, my gosh. Right? My first hey, car. I was right. very. Imp- I had met this pimp from Maryland, and I was very impressed with his lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> and so, this is amazing. And he, so this he, is the route. He, <laughs> dro- he drove a gold Eldorado. In those days yeah. in Manhattan, the pimps had the most amazing cars. And for some reason, I liked that style. And so they would customize these They're Cadillac flashy, Eldorados, Flash and Dash. It was yeah. amazing. He had a gold, a gold <laughs> Eldorado with a clear bubble over the driver's seat and a clear bubble over the passenger seat on the roof, like the Pope has, like a Pope mobile. Ah! Oh, my he would drive, and, and that was, And he had this girl. I was so naive. I didn't know she was a hooker. I used to hang out with her, and I'd be in her apartment at like 2 in the morning. She's like, Jeffrey, I have to go to a party. I'm sorry. I have to and I'm like, can I come? Can I come with you? And she would always say no, and I wonder, why can't I come to the party? Well, I want to go to the party. I must have been very naive. So, so anyway, when I came time to buy a car, I went to this place in the Bronx called Dick Gidron, and I asked him, I wanted a special car. He goes, I have one car. It was made for one of the Isley brothers, and he decided not to take it. It was a Mandarin Orange Eldorado, and I said, this is the car for me. So I buy the car, and I bought a Rolls-Royce grill to go on the car, (laughs) and it had big white wall tires. I have pictures of the car, and no white man ever drove a car like this. Trust me. It was amazing, and it had like straps in the back, just like the pimps drove, but it had doctor's plates on it. And my wife is like, we're Jewish and we live in Scarsdale. Why am I driving an orange Cadillac? You used to live in Scarsdale? Yeah. And I was like, you don't get it. You just don't get it, you know? And I was listening to Superfly, and I had like two guns. I was licensed to carry guns. Guns? I, yeah, I, oh I thought, like, I, I wanted to be Superfly, right? So anyway, <laughs> Saturday Night Live comes around, and I decide that I need to go up there. I'm making these films, and I'm shooting films on the street on Super 8, and they're crazy films, kind of like... Well, I actually got the inspiration. I, I got to show them to Woody Allen, my ideas. And he said to me, your stuff is very visual. You should really think of making films out of it. So I was doing these little silly films. Um, they were like false news reports. Like several men were arrested for smearing cream cheese on the ankles of elderly women <laughs> who wore their stockings rolled down like bagels. You ever see the old women with the stockings <laughs> yeah, around there? Yeah. Looks like fucking bagels to me, <laughs> oh, right? Yeah. So I got my dear grandmother, who was so kind and sweet, mm. 
to, to let me put cream cheese on her ankles. How <laughs> sick is that? Only a comedian would do that to their grandmother. And she made believe she had a Jewish accent. She didn't have an accent, but she made believe for me that she had a Jewish accent. And she said, you know, we have two kind of stockings, one for milk and one for meat. She said, and this crazy man, he schmeared cream cheese on my meat stockings and I can't get it off. And I zoomed in with the camera on her ankles and there's cream cheese there, right? And I did... A, a lot of strange films like that. It was uh, there was a, another one called The Masters of Disguise, and it was about two master criminals who commit crimes disguised as inanimate objects. Oh, I love that. So it starts out as two men disguised as coats rob a hat store. <laughs> they come in over the arms of two other men and they say, just act natural like wear your coats and nobody will get hurt. Right? And then the police draw composite drawings of the perpetrators and it's two coats, you know what I mean? Uh, and I, so I did many, many crimes, you know, two men disguise a pair of eyeglasses, rob a local optometrist, they come in on another man's face. And then I would interview the victim and he'd say, I, what's, I don't know what's going on. I'm walking in the street, another pair of glasses jumps onto my face and whispers in my ear, just act natural like wear your glasses and nobody will get hurt. <laughs> What's this city coming to? So I took these films and I, and I say, I have to go to Saturday Night Live with this, right? I must get up there. So I drove up in my pimp mobile. <laughs> you know, when you drive up in a car like that, you get instant attention because right. nobody had a car like that, right? Mm -hmm. And so I drive, and in those days, the street was not closed. There was no terrorism. You could drive right up to the door of 30 Rock. Yeah. I drive up to the door, the doorman's there, I throw him a few bucks, I said, could you watch my car? Lorne Michaels is expecting me. <laughs> <laughs> Why wouldn't he believe you in that car? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so he said, fine. So I go inside and I sneak past security, because you could do that in those days. Today, they'll shoot at you, you can't do that. Yeah. But in those days, I got into the elevator, I got up to Saturday Night Live, everyone was kids, the show was new. Alan Zweibel was playing handball on the wall with one of the producers who happened to be Lorne Michaels' cousin. Yeah. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I introduced myself and I tell him I'm doing these films and I got to show it to him. And he looks at the films and he goes, these are funny. These are really funny. I, I never saw anything like this. And that's how I got started. He goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hook you up with my manager. And his manager happened to be a guy named David Jonas, who died a couple of years ago at 100 years old. He's wow. the guy who discovered Freddie Prinze. Oh, wow. Not Freddie Prinze Jr., Freddie Prinze Sr. He got him the show Chico and the Man, yeah. which was a big show in those yep. days. And he, 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 he was so nice. He didn't just give me the number. He called him and told him, I got this funny guy that you should meet. And I met him. We became friends. And he... He spent the next year trying to talk me out of doing it. He goes, you're a dentist. What do you need this for? <laughs> yeah. What are you, crazy? You yeah. don't want to yeah. be in the comedy world. But I did. And he got me started writing jokes. And it took me about a year because I was thinking about smearing cream cheese on the ankles of elderly <laughs> women. And I didn't know how to write a joke, a, yeah. like a real joke. I was writing strange shit, you know. Yeah. So it took me about a year to get the hang of writing jokes. And I started writing for his people, Dick Capri, oh. Freddie Roman people like that, you know, that he was handling at the time, guys who worked the, uh, the Catskill Mountains, which was very big in those days. There were a lot of hotels, and they did comedy all over. And then from them, from Dick Capri, I met Rodney Dangerfield, and that's how I got better known, because when you're writing for a big star, people get to Pay know attention. your name. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where? Wow, so much information. So it all came from that, that pimp mobile. Seriously. <laughs> and then it's I'll tell you something visual. funny. So when I did Kroll show a couple of years ago, Nick Kroll and John Mulaney, you know, I'm I don't I don't know if you know, I'm the first too much tuna guy. 
Did you know that? No. <laughs> to be pranked with too much tuna. Are you familiar with the Oh Hello show that's on Broadway? Yes. Yeah. Okay, Nick Kroll and John Mulaney. Well, and I Mulaney. know Nick Kroll. We used to do comedy together okay. downtown. So they have a hit show on Broadway. It's closing next week. It's been on Broadway since October at the Lyceum Theater. I heard it's Theater. amazing. And part of the show is they do too much tuna. They prank people with a big tuna sandwich. Mm-hmm. I'm the first. I was the very first. They brought me out to L.A., we did it on Comedy Central. It went viral. <laughs> I refused to be pranked during the prank. It was, it was, a, it was a crazy. It was a crazy thing, and they you refused, you refused to be pranked. Like you knew you were getting pranked, and they still succeeded to prank well, you. Well, they no, they wow. tell you that they're pranking. They're like, we're pranking you with a big tuna sandwich. I'm like, well, let's just see what happens, yeah. right? And then they bring out this this huge tuna sandwich about this tall, and they said, well, what do you think? We, we're pranking you, and I'm like. Uh, that's how I like my tuna sandwich. I said, I said there, there, there's too many potato chips and there's too much fruit salad, but the tuna is perfect. And they're like, no, it's not. We're pranking you. And I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> and they go, there's cameras all around. And I'm like, I'm not looking. And they go, no, you have to look. There's cameras all around. I said, I'm not looking. And I picked up the sandwich and I ate it just like that. And it was crazy. And we only did two takes and I thought I did something wrong. Because they only did two takes, and other people, they go, no, we loved what you did. That's why we only did two takes. Oh, that's and it, great. It went viral. So when they opened on Broadway, they had me as their open on their opening night. Ah. And they made me a special jacket. Are you familiar with the Guardian Angels? You know, Curtis Sliwa and the Guardian Angels. They ride the subways. They arrest yes. criminals. Yes, they yes, wear yes. red berets. Yep, oh, yeah. And they have red jackets. And mm-hmm. the jackets say Guardian Angels. Mm-hmm. Nick Kroll and John Mulaney made me a jacket that says Gurian Angels. <laughs> and they made me the head of security for the Oh Hello Show. How funny. So this summer in Montreal, we're up at the Just for Laughs Festival, and mm-hmm. Nick and John were up there, and they were doing their Oh Hello Show. I and saw they, they had me in the show. Yeah. I gave the tuna sandwich to Judd Apatow. <laughs> he was being pranked. And they're like, Jeffrey, is Jeffrey here? And I come out with this big tuna sandwich. And so... They made me part of the show. Isn't that Aww, fun? Yeah, oh, that's, that's awesome. So Isn't that fun. amazing? Yeah, that's really cool. We um we have some questions that we ask um, every guest. Okay. Uh, so Am I considered a guest? Yeah, okay. of course. <laughs> the most. Okay. You're the most of a guest. Well, you kind of answered that already. Um, uh, what is um, What are some of the things you find difficult in life? Almost everything. Oh. Yeah, it's life is life is really a struggle. Yeah. Um. I'm a very sensitive person, mm-hmm. and it's so funny. I was just talking about that earlier today. Um, when you when you've been given a gift of sensitivity, and a lot of women relate to this mm-hmm. because women go through life being told that they're too sensitive, which is exactly the wrong message. Sensitivity is a gift that feels like a burden, but it's really a strength because it allows you to be empathetic to other people. That's why women are kinder, just in, you know, in oh, general, yeah. you know. And it's also the reason that women get a lot more um, emotional illnesses. Like I used to do, I'm very involved in healing and energy work. Mm-hmm. Most patients are women because women internalize mm-hmm. everything around them. They're mm-hmm. very sensitive, but they're supposed mm-hmm. to be. And they take everything in and it affects the flow of your energy. And so a lot of women get migraine headaches and physical body pain caused by stress. Oh. And it's important to learn to own your sensitivity. When you're sensitive, life is difficult because you feel everything around you. 
And so it's been a struggle my whole life. I've had to battle, which is why I said I do everything that makes me uncomfortable because so many things make me uncomfortable. I would imagine it's even a little more difficult for a man because society... Like, frowns on yeah, that. Frowns Most men it. don't want a cop to being sensitive. I hug everybody for that <laughs> reason. I make them say, I have hell's angels, man. Like, I go up, I mean, because I know them. I don't just hug strange hell's angels. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I, I like to be in all different groups of people. I feel like I'm a chameleon in a sense. Mm-hmm. I'm very often the only white guy in a group of all, all black people. And I love everybody until you teach me not to. Yeah. So my sensitivity has been, um, an aid to me in many different ways, but it also makes life difficult. So I find a lot of things are hard for me to do, but I do them anyway yeah. because the, uh, the, the alternative is not acceptable to me. I just realized that it's actually really quiet in your apartment. Very yeah. quiet. Yeah. That must help that you have this to come to and it's quiet and calm and clean. Well, I believe, like, my apartment is my happiness center. I teach people when I do, you know... I used to lecture on healing and energy work for actors and how to keep your life calm and centered, mm. you know, and, and how to stay happy all the time. Mm. And if you notice, my whole apartment is... <laughs> how, do, how do you get happy to begin with? <laughs> well, my apartment is white, right? My yeah. piano is white. My carpeting is white. I, bright. I, I, surround myself with, I surround myself with bright colors. And I teach people that... And, and I have pictures of my kids and my family around... Um, every place in your apartment that you look should be something that makes you happy. Because mm. once you leave your apartment, you have no control over what the universe puts in your path. Yeah. You're, you're at the mercy of the universe. The only place you can hope to control your environment is where you live. So even if you have just one room, you should put up colors that you like. Like you saw when you came in, I have balloons there, right? Yeah, yeah that makes you happy. It's like a party. And it's pretty yeah, And it may fun. seem childish, but I have crayons and I have toys and my apartment is... Did you notice my spoon plants? Oh. You know, I grow spoons, which is very, oh very hard so to do. Funny. You need just the right lighting to do that. But I have spoon plants. They're beautiful. They're very rare. You know? So I do things. And, and you, if you look in the kitchen, you see my balloon soup on the stove? <laughs> when the balloons get old, I make soup out of them. So I do this for me. Because yeah. I think it's important to stay in a good frame of mind because the world is this very strange place and crazy shit happens that you don't expect every single day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we get disappointed and people let us down and we're mm-hmm. very often we're surrounded by negativity. Mm. And, and I feel like it's heightened in New York. It's com- like well, it's the only face. place I know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's around you all the time yeah. and you meet very strange people across your path. A lot of weird shit happens. Yeah, a lot. And so, so in order to keep yourself balanced, you have to do that for yourself at home. And I call it creating your own happiness center. This is my happiness center. Okay. Does any you of know? your healing work help with PMS, just out of curiosity? It, you know what? It, you can't ever say what it helps because you're a channel for energy that comes from the universe, whether God, nature, whatever it is. God is so giving me PMS? It doesn't. No, no, no. Oh. When you transfer healing energy to someone. Yeah. You can't feel that the healing is coming from you. Right. It's coming from a higher place. Right. And you're transferring. On a very simple level, we've all experienced it. If you've ever been upset and someone that you trusted gave you a hug and you felt better afterwards, yeah, it's because you allowed them to transfer positive energy to you and you were open to receiving it. But it's possible to do that with strangers. 
if you understand the concept, if you're open to it. You can't go around hugging everyone in the street. But in spiritual See, groups... Sean, I told you you can't do that. That's one of the reasons that people <laughs> hug each other. Have you ever been in places where groups where people give each other hugs? I mean, every time I walk with Shauna, strangers yeah. come up to her and start talking to her. I'm like, Shauna, don't. You don't have to talk to every single person. It's going to take us I two a, hours I'm to a get total No, but that's nice. She must put out that energy. Yes, but then she feels attacked. She's like, oh my God, can you believe Not what? at I'm first. Like, yes. At first, I'm like, oh yeah. After a minute, she'll be like, I yeah. Why did I let that person talk to me? Well, see, it? that's the thing. You have to create a balance because yeah. it can feel invasive. Yeah. Like a lot of women get cold hands and feet. You guys ever have that? Oh, no, I have hot cold? hands. You have hot hands? I have cold. Well, that's probably why people approach you because they oh. can feel that. When your energy flows, it allows your hands to be hot. When women protect themselves, they keep their energy near their heart. Yeah. And so their hands and feet get cold Are a yours lot. Cold? Yeah, I protect myself. Oh my because, god, you do. Because a, a lot of women get a lot of unwanted attention and it's very uncomfortable walking <laughs> yeah, in the street. Me, always. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, no, 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 yeah, no. Exactly. It's and those teeth. What, <laughs> yeah. That smile. People are drawn to that smile. <laughs> oh, I'm not smiling anymore. But that's what but and, and, and it's so interesting because some women could wrap themselves in brown paper and they'll still get attention. It's not about necessarily what you wear, it's the energy that you put out. And people are sensitive to it, even though they don't realize it, they hmm. respond to it. It's all about energy. There's so much. Even when you go on stage, it's about the energy that you put out. Yes, it's the energy that, that you're I receiving from the audience. Yeah. It's an exchange oh, of energy. Every interchange is about energy. And I, yeah. What I find the most difficult personally about performing is that when my energy is good and I have love in my heart, I can get on stage and I feel like it's a good experience even if my material didn't do that well or you know, I, I, I wasn't necessarily performing at the peak or whatever. It's still a positive experience. But when I feel blue and my heart is not in a good place, I feel like getting, it's excruciating. Like, and I don't know how to shake myself out of that sometimes. Like sometimes I cannot shake myself out of, out of the dark place. You it know? takes a lot of practice. You have to do things like making a gratitude list. I do. You know, there are yeah. a, a lot I of do the, all that I stuff. had a heart attack a year ago oh. you know, in December. And one of the reasons I was blessed that I recovered, you know, I, I was on stage five days later at New York Comedy I Club. Emilio said to amazing. me, are you crazy? I know. I'm like, I don't want to lose my spot. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Total was, comedian. Yeah. I was Moment. 95. I'd be like, I need to take a year and a half off. <laughs> they told me I was 95% blocked in the major artery to my heart, the one they call the Widowmaker. Yeah, the Widowmaker, I've heard of it. I didn't know about that until after it happened to me. And so I was very, very lucky that it worked out, that I'm okay. And I attribute a lot of it to the fact that I stayed very calm the whole time. I stayed very centered. I didn't... It was like a surreal dream. I didn't even realize. I'm like, how can I be having a heart attack? Where were you? I was in the middle of the street, you know, when it happened. I was walking near Radio City. It was a pouring rain. And I hate to go out in the rain anyway because of my hair. I don't, I, I don't go out in the rain much. But I had an appointment with a chiropractor, and I had never been there before, and I didn't want to break the appointment. And so I thought maybe it was muscular. I was getting this cramp, like a cramp in my chest. Have wow. you ever got a cramp in your calf? You know how yeah, much that hurts? Sure. It's a killer, right, in the middle of the night. Oh. like Sometimes i got to jump yeah. out of bed. That's what it felt like in my chest. It was, oh. I didn't have shortness of breath. I didn't have pain in my arm. I just had this thing. My chest felt like Cramped. it was tightening up. So I thought maybe the chiropractor could help me. So I'm walking along, and it's getting worse and worse. And I, for some reason, I turned down 50th Street, and I see four cops in a van. 
right? And it's embarrassing to tell somebody that you think you're having yeah. a heart attack. It's like, because what if you're not? You know, it just feels weird. Like, yeah. I'm, but I figured, but I'd be, I figured I'd be an awful schmuck if I just die in the street and I didn't tell anybody. So I go up to the cops and I knock <laughs> on the window and the cop rolls down the window and I'm like, I'm sorry to bother you, but I think I'm having a heart attack. And he says to me, well, I think you should go to the hospital. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's why I'm telling you. I'm not just telling everyone. Yeah. <laughs> hey! I'm like, I'm like, I couldn't help but notice the uniform in the police van. I, you know, I'm thinking they'll say to me, jump in and we'll drive you to that. Put, a, put yeah. the siren on. Something, tell you. yeah. No, nah, he says to me, well, we're stuck in traffic. It'll probably be faster if you walk. Oh my gosh. So I said, well, where's the nearest hospital? <laughs> oh my God. So, wow. And he didn't know where the hospital, none of the cops knew, all four cops, what? nobody knows where the hospital, on 50th Street, going towards 6th Avenue. So he says to me, he takes out his phone and starts looking for a hospital. <laughs> so then next thing I know, he says to me, do you have Google Maps? Oh my God. So I said, no. He says, you should probably download Google Maps. <laughs> I swear to God. So I went down. So I walked away because I thought to myself, this is stupid. It's like a Woody Allen movie. I tell the guy <laughs> oh I'm having God. a heart attack. He tells me to download Google Maps. <laughs> so I walked away. So I could only get another half a block because the pain got really bad. So there's another cop on the corner, and he's directing traffic, and he's on a walkie-talkie. I do the same thing to him. I said, I'm sorry to bother you, but I think I'm having a heart attack. I'm very polite. I'm Jewish. When we have a heart attack, we still will stay polite. I'm sorry to bother you, sir. I'm such a jerk right now. I should have just dropped to the ground and screamed. I'd be like, I'm dying. Yeah, I'm tapping the guy. I'm sorry to bother you. I think I'm having a heart attack. Excuse me, sir. He says to me, stand over here on the side. There was like these metal stanchions. He was directing. So I'm standing there for a couple of minutes. And I say to the guy, are they coming? And he says, oh, I didn't call them yet. What? Like no one was too uh, uh, upset about my heart attack. Oh my so God. so he, he calls them and then and then a fire truck comes first because firemen, they're all EMTs. And yeah. a lot of times they'll get to a scene first. Right. Four or five firemen come up. They get off the truck. They say, who's the patient? I'm like, me. So this guy says, well, climb up on the truck. Oh I'm, like, I'm like, really? He goes, now nah, <laughs> we're just guess. fucking with you. Just like that. He goes, we're just fucking with you. Uh. Nobody took it seriously. Then the ambulance finally comes. They take me in the ambulance. Two guys named Mike who think it's hilarious that both their names are Mike. <laughs> oh my God. They're telling jokes. And they're, and they're asking me stupid questions. Ridiculous medical. Did you ever have an uncle that felt nauseous? I'm like, what are you kidding? Oh my gosh. I'm like, take me to the hospital. They wouldn't take me to the hospital until I answered all the questions. <laughs> I, I was flipping out. I'm oh like, I, I, and it turns out that the kind of heart attack I had doesn't show on an EKG. So they did an EKG in the ambulance, and they're like, we're not convinced you're having a heart attack. What? I'm like, I know him. I feels like I'm yeah. having a heart attack. Then they squirt some shit on my face. They're finally driving. They don't put on the siren. I'm like, why don't you use the siren? Well, you don't fall within the parameters of a siren. <laughs> I'm like, what has to happen to you to put on a siren? <laughs> what, do you have to be cut in half? <laughs> they wouldn't put it. And then they squirt something on my face. I'm like, what was that? They go, nitroglycerin. I go, it's what? supposed to go under my tongue. They go, that's close enough. Like, I, oh, my God. It was, it was uh, they, they accidentally saved my life. That's what happened. Wow. I got to the emergency room. I'm in there for nine hours until they got me. Luckily, they started me on blood thinners. But the point of that whole story was that I stayed calm. Yeah. And I really think that had a lot to do with it. You and stayed calm you, and you stayed conscious. Yeah. And I had to advocate for myself. My kids yeah. came down eventually, you know. But while you're there alone, it's a very weird thing. Yeah. And I had to really stay focused. Yeah. And ask people to do what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Because oh everyone's gosh. running around like a chicken without a head. It's yeah. like, it's like crazy. 
Okay, so, well, um, okay. What's your next question? Because then we're going to run out of time. What's, what's <laughs> your greatest fear and why? I mean, I feel like we've covered a yeah, lot of this. Yeah, we've covered. My greatest fear and why. You know what? I don't have a great... Just maybe that I want to accomplish everything that I want to accomplish during my lifetime. I have so many things that interest uh-huh. me. Yeah. And I like to do so many different things. And you've done and, so many different and, things. And I've done a lot. I've done, you know, I, I never expected to have a book. I have four books. Can I say my new book? Yeah, yeah okay. of course. It's Laughing Legends with an Introduction by Chris Rock. And this, my favorite book, is called Man Robs Bank with His Chin <laughs> and Other Unusual Stories Missed by Mainstream Media. <laughs> and it's a book, you know, I used to write for the Weekly World News. And where can they buy that? Amazon? They're both on Amazon. Okay. Yeah, Laughing Legends and Man Robs Bank with His Chin and Other Unusual, and, and other unusual Stories Missed by Mainstream Media. That's the important thing. That's fine. The forward was written by the guy who created The Onion. Oh, that's oh. Because the, the, the Weekly World News was the precursor to The Onion. Okay. And we have, you know, there's stories like uh, men with infant's head sues for discrimination, <laughs> you know, and uh, thin man travels the world by overnight mail. <laughs> man, man killed for giving girlfriend a snail instead of an engagement ring. You can't do that. <laughs> you if, can't if, do if Emilio that. had given you a snail, you wouldn't have accepted his proposal. No. No, absolutely not. No way. And no. that's what this girl said. She not goes, with these teeth. She that's killed him. Way. He gave her the snail. She killed the snail in him. She said, I would have been happy with just the plain ring. Why did he have to give me that snail? <laughs> <laughs> Why did he have to give me that, that snail? snail? <laughs> he had read that somewhere in the Fiji Islands, when a man cares for a woman, he gives her a tiny snail. And he Aww. thought, and she had waited for 20 years to get engaged. And he took Aww. her to this fabulous restaurant. He bought expensive wine. And then he gives her this little snail. No ring, just a snail. <laughs> so she went berserk. And she killed the snail in him. And I don't blame her. Gone, girls. <laughs> Boom. Exactly. <laughs> Bye-bye. Exactly. Bye-bye. Okay, last question. Have you conquered any fears? Which I yeah, feel like. That my whole story is yeah. about yeah, conquering the fears, thing. the stuttering, yeah, yeah. Stutter, going on stage, going on stage being a dentist, battling I was the rain with your hair, with my hair, everything is yeah. <laughs> I battle, I battle fear on a daily basis. I love that. It's the awesome. truth, and it's important to do that. And for anyone who's listening, do that because you'll regret it if you don't. Fear will hold you back. True. You know, guys. one time I was um um. A very uncomfortable about the fact that I had one boob bigger than the other, mm-hmm. and so what I did was I did a um, I did a show, a live show where we body painted ourselves. So all I was wearing was underwear and body paint. And after I went out on stage naked with the body paint on and my one big boob, I felt a lot. I felt a lot better. That's such an amazing story. I felt a lot better. Because what courage it takes to do that, to confront your uncomfortability and expose it to the world. Yeah, Have you seen The Naked Show at the Creek? It's amazing to me. These comics come out on stage and they take off all their clothes and they're completely naked on stage. And it's not people that are bodybuilders by any stretch of the imagination. They're people with just regular bodies. Yeah, yeah. Caitlin Bailey does it. And and well, and she turned it over to somebody else. But it's, it's amazing to me that someone could have it. And there's actually a story in this book about a schizophrenic woman, mm-hmm. 
who wanted to have her breasts enlarged, but she only did one. <laughs> She's got my story. She's got Come your story. <laughs> she has your story down pat. It's amazing. You didn't know you were made history. Okay. So we do, um, what we've been doing is writing sketches for the show, and we have uh-huh. you do a cold read. We told you about this yeah, sure, in the letter. Cool. Okay. So you're um, you're playing the driver in this sketch. Okay. Um, you can play whoever you want. On Which car. one's uh, the one that's calm? Wait, but I have no so, lines. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. <laughs> you're right. Wait, there's one I'm the guest. I have no lines at all. Well, <laughs> you can either be the old woman or you can be the shop worker. Your choice. Um, Are you allowed to have such poisons in your podcast? I know. I was just thinking that. I was like, this is like epically epically large. You're just preparing now on the air? I read it, and I was like, this is Shauna. I can read it. Okay, okay, okay. okay. No, no, that's what I meant. Okay, all right. So who's who? Who's Zoe, and who's the customer? Ankar is going to be Zoe. Zoe. I'm going to be the customer, and you're the driver. I'm the driver. Yeah, okay. So this is a retail shop on the Upper East Side. It's called Fanny Fantastics Interior Day. Hi. Welcome to Fanny Fantastics. We're having a sale today. Everything is 23% off. Uh, can you take my bag and I need a chair to sit down? Ugh! It's exhausting driving around this city. Can you even take it? Ugh! How much is this dress? Uh, it's 550 but it's 23% off. Um, yeah, can you please get my driver and tell him I need my tea? Also, sorry. <laughs> I'm a friend of Fanny's, so I get a much bigger discount. Look me up. I'm Crystal Kipper Stalin. <clears throat> help me up. Jesus, I can't sit in this chair all day. Okay, I will help you up and uh, get your driver. Get me my tea, too. Uh, sir, sir, Mrs. Kipper Stalin <laughs> needs you and uh, asked to bring her tea. Wait a minute, you wrote this and you don't know the name Kipper Stalin? I wrote it. No, I wrote it. <laughs> you didn't bother to teach her Kipper Stalin? <laughs> no, we... She said it like it's the first time she saw Kipper Stalin. We also do a lot of, like... Everybody's name make... is Kipper Stalin. We, we do stuff, like, to trip each other up, too. Oh, okay, all right. So here's my part. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, yeah here's her tea. I'm just going to step in for a minute. It's freezing outside. You got any size 16 dresses in here? Ha, that's so funny. No, we don't have anything bigger than size 8. Sorry. Um, I'd like to try these things on, and I'm going to need to drop them off, you, to drop them off at my apartment if I take them. Okay? Sure, no problem, Mrs. Kipper Stalin. Hey, so what's your name, miss? Oh, hi. I'm Zoe. Hey, Zoe, I'm Ted, and man, can I drive. I am stuck in this dress. Get me out of this thing. Oh, my God, God. Mrs. Stalin, those are pants. Let me help you. Oh, oh. Hey, I like the way you move, Zoe. Oh, oh, really? They're pants? Don't make excuses because you're bad at your job. Hand me my tea. Here, try this. I think it will look so lovely on you, and those colors go so great with your hair. Yeah, I need. I think we need to slow down this relationship, Zoe. We are going so fast. Ted, call my husband and ask him if he likes brown. I for, I forget if he likes brown. I can't buy anything if he doesn't like it. Well, it looks so lovely on you. I bet it would look lovely on you, Zoe. Well, maybe just I was. Hey, yo. See what I did there? <laughs> Ted, call my husband. Okay. How about this necklace with this dress? This jewelry is on sale for 34% off. Um, I buy real jewelry. I have a husband, for Christ's sakes. Get a grip on yourself, girl. Know your customers. Okay. How about this lovely wrap? 
He hates Brown. Mrs. Kipperstol, Mr. Kipperstolen said he hates Brown. Oh, for the love of Christ. Just take this wrap off of me. Hand me my tea again. I just, I just realized I'm starving. I need to go to lunch and come back. Hold this stuff for me and I will come back. Oh, the store policy is that we don't hold items. It's such a small space and people don't often come back, but I will remember everything you got and I'm sure no one will grab anything up in a couple of hours. Uh-oh, Zoe. Okay, you listen here, Zelda, or whatever your name is. I'm Crystal Kipperstolen, and if I ask you to hold this entire store, then you hold it for me. Do you understand? Sure, no problem. I misunderstood what you said earlier when you said your name. I thought you said it was Kipperstugan. Hey, good one, Zoe. Fine, see you later, maybe. And that huge pile of clothes better be right there when I get back, if I come back. We only have one dressing room, so I will have to pick everything up off the floor and make room for someone else. Jesus, I need a martini. Could life get more stressful? Hey, Zoe, did she have on a dress when she came in here? Yes, she did. She forgot to put it back on. <laughs> All right, that should be a fun lunch for her. Hey, can I get your number? Yes, but you should know I'm a boy. Hey, hey, yo. That's cool. I'm cool. You cool? Sure, I'm cool. Here's my number. See you around, Zoe. See you in about 20 minutes when she sends you for her dress. Awesome. Well, there's something that happened to me recently. I met this really hot chick. <laughs> and then I took her hand. And then she had something to admit to me. I noticed her hand was like really not soft at all, like a girl's hand, because very often I'll look at someone's hand and I'll feel their energy, and I'm like, wow. She was very exotic looking, and this was in the Apple store, and I started getting really nervous, because I had already asked her for a number, (laughs) And and then she said, I just want you to know I'm trans, and I was like, wow, that's really interesting. I, I would have no way of knowing. And then I just went into like some, I went into the ether. Yeah. Like I just, I, I don't know what I did after that. The, uh, I was taking a lesson and the guy called me and I said, I'm sorry, I have to go back to my thing, <laughs> to, to my lesson. It was a very interesting experience because I found myself holding, a, I guess, a guy's hand. Yeah. But she was beautiful. Yeah. Really beautiful. Oh, so you didn't call her. It's very interesting. I didn't get her number because the guy called me back and I said, we'll, let, we'll exchange oh, numbers. Oh, oh. But she left. She must have felt awkward or something. I don't know. But it was interesting because I could feel something different when I yeah. felt her hand. It didn't feel like a girl's hand. Yeah. Very well, interesting. That's a fitting story then. Good job, Zoe, Shana. It fit, very fit, funny. It fit in. Uh, her name was not Mrs. Kipperstall. No, her name is Kipperstugan. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Jeffrey. Oh, you're really well, thank you for having me. This was so fun. Did you guys have fun? We yeah, it was so fun. fun. Thank in my you. happiness center? Yes. Yeah. Good. Do you have anything that you want to plug Any besides shows the book? coming up or the book? Twitter, um, Instagram, Yeah, I'm going to be... Yeah, well, my Twitter is at Jeffrey Gurian, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, not E-R-Y. Too many people are misspelling Jeffrey these days. Jeffrey Gurian, G-U-R-I-A-N. Same on Instagram. Um, I would love for people to come to my YouTube channel. Okay. which is youtube.com slash Gurian News Network. And it's interviews with everybody you love in comedy. Jimmy Fallon, Chelsea Handler, John Stewart, Seth Meyers. That's awesome. You know, D.L. Hughley. Just like everybody in comedy. I have over 400 interviews, Great. you know, and, and about 1.3 million views. And I need subscribers. So if people will come, that would be really cool. And 
my books. That's all. And oh, my website is comedymatterstv.com. All right. And there's a lot of fun stuff on there. You'll see the Too Much Tuna stuff and the Blisteritos with I'm Katie gonna Perry. I'm going to check that out. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a lot of, whole, lot of fun stuff. Yeah. All right. Thanks, awesome. Jeffrey. Thanks, Jeffrey. You're Bye. welcome. Bye. Bye. Gone Girls Podcast. We interview the people we like and try to get to the bottom of life. The Gone Girls Podcast. The Gone Girls Podcast Show.